We're once again in the book of Romans this morning, the second chapter of this great letter. Paul is talking about the gospel in this letter to the Romans. And starting in verse 18 of chapter 1, he began his discussion by revealing the fallen condition of mankind. When dealing with a gospel discussion, you must first realize what the problem is. The gospel is the good news of God, but to understand what the good news of God is, you must first understand the bad news of man. And that is that left on his own, he has rejected God. He has fallen and depraved. That's where you must start in your understanding of the gospel. And so that's where Paul does start in chapter 1. Through the latter half of the first chapter, we saw the general truth about fallen mankind. What is true of every man and woman on earth, and how they have rejected even the most basic truths about God. And as a result of that, he gave them over to their sins. In his wrath for rejecting them, denying the very truth that he has revealed to them. Now, as we started chapter 2 in our last study, we saw that Paul has progressed from a discussion about every man and the basic truth that has been revealed to everyone through the creation and has now started to include those who have been, give, been given a little more information, those to whom God has revealed more. Most people look at the differences between chapters 1 and 2 as the differences between Gentiles in chapter 1 and the Jews in chapter 2. Because the Gentiles were people to whom God didn't reveal his word. He didn't come to them and give them specific revelation. In Paul's letter to the Ephesians, he talks about the Gentiles in the second half of the second chapter of that letter. And he says that they were excluded from Israel, strangers to God's covenants, having no hope and without God in the world. Gentiles had been given nothing but the general revelation of God that we talked about when we were in chapter 1. But to the Jews, the nation of Israel, his chosen nation, he did give them specific revelation. He'll say about them later on in the book of Romans in chapter 9, in verses 4 and 5, who are Israelites, to whom belongs the adoption as sons, and the glory, and the covenants, and the giving of the law, and the temple service, and the promises, whose are the fathers, and from whom is the Christ, according to the flesh, who is over all, God blessed forever. Amen. The Jews, as opposed to the Gentiles, had been given every advantage. They had been given promises, prophets, covenants, the law. And even the Messiah himself came to them, born into that nation when he came to earth. There was no advantage that they didn't have. And yet, as we're talking about here in these first chapters of Romans, they are also included in this discussion on fallen man. Well, how can that be? How could someone who was given so much, had such an advantage, even over others in the world who were given no direct revelation from God, how could someone even think to suggest that they might not be saved? That was always the question that the Jews had. Their point of view was, we are Jews, the children of Abraham. We are saved by that very fact. But that's not the case. That is not true. As Paul moved from chapter 1 into chapter 2, we went from those who knew nothing about God's general revelation to those who had a moral advantage. 
And as we move through these initial 16 verses at the beginning of the chapter, we come to see that Paul is moving us to a discussion on the Jews. In the early verses, he doesn't mention them by name. He won't do that until we get to verse 17. But in the very first verse, we saw that he changed from talking about those who were depraved and handed over to their sins, and he started talking to those who felt they had a right to judge. He said in verse 1, Therefore you have no excuse, every one of you who passes judgment, for in that which you judge another, you condemn yourself, for you who judge practice the same things. The group that he is addressing now, what do they do? They pass judgment. They have a knowledge of what is right and wrong, and they see the world doing the wrong things, and they judge them for it. But what is also true? They do the same things themselves. They are not without sin themselves, and yet they are casting stones at others. The Jews were notorious for doing this, and ultimately that is where Paul is going to take us in this discussion. Through the next ten verses, all of what we looked at in our last study, we saw Paul engage in a discussion on the judgment of God, how his judgment will fall upon uh, everyone who practices sins. Verse 2 said, Judgment of God rightly falls upon those who practice such things. Verse 3, If you practice the same things, will you escape his judgment? Verse 4, They treat God's kindness and patience in giving them opportunity to repent with contempt. Verse 5, Every sin that is done while thinking lightly of God's kindness and patience stores up wrath for the final day of judgment. And then in verses 6 through 11, we saw that God will impartially judge everyone according to what they have done. The judgment of God is done according to what a person does. People are judged by their works. People that do good things will be rewarded for good things. People that do bad things will suffer for those bad things. That is the impartial nature of God's judgment. Now keep in mind, through this section... Building blocks. Building blocks are going on here. The concept that Paul is dealing with here is the most basic concept of how God will judge. Those who do good get good results. Those who do bad get bad results. But he hasn't yet gotten to the discussion on how a person can do good things. How is that even possible? So far, all we're talking about is the fallen nature of man and how he rejects God and practices wickedness. That's all that we've seen. We will not talk about how it is that anyone could do anything that God would consider good until we get to the end of chapter 3. So don't misunderstand, and this will carry through in our discussion today as well. This in no way is talking about a way that someone can do enough good to earn their salvation, that someone could be good enough to escape God's judgment. We'll see as we continue on that that isn't possible. But what he is saying here, and why he is bringing it up, is going back to the good news versus bad news thing. The good news is, God judges fairly based on what you've done. The bad news is, no matter what you might think, 
you haven't done anything good. And we'll continue to see why here as we go through these chapters. But again, keep in mind, we are talking here about fallen, sinful man. Mankind that has rejected God. Mankind that has not accepted the gospel. Mankind that suppresses the truth in unrighteousness. These are unbelievers. If you are a believer, then this is not a discussion about you. It's a discussion about who you used to be. This did pertain to you. This was your condition. But those who are saved, this is past tense that we're dealing with here. But it's important for us to understand that these things here that used to characterize us are still characterizing those who belong to the world around us, who haven't experienced the life-changing power of the gospel in their lives. This is talking about them. Now, as we come to verse 12, we're going to continue talking about God's impartial judgment on the fallen world. We're going to see how Paul's discussion brings us even closer to revealing how this pertains to the Jews as well as the Gentiles, even though the Jews seemed to have an advantage, seemed to be, quote-unquote, closer to God than the Gentiles were. But as we'll find out here, there is no idea of close when it comes to an impartial judge, and God is an impartial judge. So look with me at verse 12. We'll see how he starts this next section. For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law, and all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. Now we get another clue here. We get a little closer. Here he starts to talk about the law. He hasn't mentioned the law before but he brings it up for the first time, and we see two different classes of people talked about here. There are those without the law, and there are those who are under the law, and they are not the same people. This is the Mosaic law that he's talking about here, the law given to Moses on Mount Sinai. And he was to give uh, this to the people of Israel, to the Jews. That law was given to the Jews. That verse uh, I read earlier from chapter 9 where Paul said that um, was one of the characteristics of the Israelites. To who belong the adoption of sons and the glory and the covenants and the giving of the law. The law was given to Israel. So when Paul says those under the law, he's talking about the Israelites. When he says those without the law, he's talking about everybody else, which would be the Gentiles. If you're not a Jew, you're a Gentile. The law was not given to the Gentiles. That's something that we need to understand, but I think it gets lost in discussions today. Turn back with me to the book of Exodus in the 19th chapter. I want you to see this because there's confusion among people in the church as to whether or not the law is in effect, whether or not other groups had any relationship to the law. We see here in Exodus chapter 19, when God was giving the law to Moses and what he told him then, look down at verse 3. It says, Moses went up to God, and the Lord called to him from the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, and tell the sons of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and how I bore you on eagles' wings, and brought you to myself. Now, 
Now then, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be my own possession among all the peoples. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the sons of Israel. So God tells the people here, through Moses, if you obey my voice, keep my covenant. This is referring to all that he's going to give Moses in the following chapters, the giving of the law. The Mosaic law was a conditional covenant between God and Israel. If you do this, then I will do this. You note back up in verse 3, Moses is instructed to give this to whom? To the house of Jacob and tell the sons of Israel. That's to whom God is making this agreement, and that's whom Moses brings these words to. Look at, look at verse 7. So Moses came and called the elders of the people and set before them all these words which the Lord had commanded him. All the people answered together and said, All that the Lord has spoken we will do. And Moses brought back the words of the people to the Lord. So what happens here? They agree to this. God says, do this, and you will be blessed. They respond back, we will do all that God says. And then Moses brings back the people's words to God. Moses is brokering this deal between God and the people of Israel. He is the mediator of this covenant between God and the Israelites. So you see the intent here and what the law was always supposed to be an agreement between God and the nation of Israel. This marked Israel out as a special, unique people. So when Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2, which I mentioned earlier, that the Gentiles were strangers to the covenants, this Mosaic covenant is included in that. They weren't under the law because it hadn't been given to them. When Paul says Israelites were unique because the law had come to them, that marked them out as special. They were given something that no other nation on earth had been given. Now, there is misunderstanding of that today, because what that means is that anyone who is not a Jew wasn't and isn't under the Mosaic Law. I am not a Jew. I am not under the Mosaic Law. I wasn't before I was saved. I am not now that I am saved. The Mosaic Law isn't something that we need to be bringing back or putting ourselves under because it was a temporary covenant between Israel and God. Temporary until the coming of the Messiah. It pointed the way to him as a tutor. Israel couldn't keep the law. They failed in their part of that conditional covenant. God said, obey my voice, keep my covenant. They couldn't do either one of those. Therefore, it was null and void because the condition wasn't met. But what it did do was show them their sin. And in showing them their sin, they understood right from wrong. They understood better than anyone else what God wanted them to do. So they had that advantage. But there is no bringing of the law back. There is no need for that. You look at a book like Galatians. In many ways, a parallel book to Romans. And Paul has some very strong words for the Galatians. Why? 
what were they trying to do? They were trying to bring back certain aspects of the law. They were trying to put themselves back under certain requirements of the law. They didn't need to do that. In fact, Paul makes it very clear that doing that is taking what Christ accomplished on the cross and trying to add our own works to make it, quote-unquote, better. And nothing that we can do can make Christ's atoning work better in any way. In fact, as we saw in the first chapter of 1 Corinthians several weeks ago, adding anything to the message of the cross makes it empty, makes it void. So when we see back here in Romans chapter 2 that there are two types of people, those who are under the law and those without the law, we're talking about the difference between Jew and Gentile. And this goes right along with what Paul has been saying. Gentiles who know very little because they have no special revelation and Jews who know more because they have been given the law and yet, even between these two groups, God is impartial in his judgment. So that's how we approach this here, because these are the two groups that Paul is referring to, Jew and Gentile. When we see the verse uh, start off with, for all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law, we know here he's talking about Gentiles, those without the law. They had been given no special revelation, no special knowledge from God. They are without the law, and they would understand that, and the Jews would understand that. There would be no argument from either side on that point. And so what Paul is saying here in this, in this part of the verse is really the same as what he said in chapter 1 when talking about the Gentiles. They don't have the law. They weren't given the law, and they will perish without the law. And this doesn't mean that since they don't have the law, that that will cause them to perish. It means that they will perish by a different standard. What did we see in chapter 1? That they, We saw that they knew enough about God and about what was true to be condemned. Verse 20 told us that they are without excuse. The limited general knowledge that they had was enough to condemn them, to make them guilty before God. And what they knew was outside of any direct revelation from God. So that's what Paul is saying here. Really, there's no argument in this. But then he goes on, and this is where there would start to be some resistance. And he says, and all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. Now he turns the tables on those who were given the law, who were under the law. And who was that? Israel, the Jews. The Jews will be judged by the law because that was the revelation that they were given. Now, he said the Gentiles would perish without the law. But here he says the Jews are judged by the law. The idea is really the same. What Paul is conveying here is that both groups will stand guilty before God. But they will be judged by different standards, what they have done according to what they knew, what had been revealed to them. Keep in mind, once again, and I know I keep stressing this, but it's very important, we're talking about the very basics of fallen mankind. One fallen man is a Gentile. He has no law. He will be judged apart from the law. 
Another fallen man is a Jew. He has the law. He will stand condemned by the law. That is the standard that God will use to judge him. The Gentile, he looks at the skies and says, God didn't make that. A big, massive, chaotic explosion made that. God will hold him accountable for the truth that he suppresses. The Jew says, I know the law. I know what God has said, but I stumbled on this point or on that point of it. I did something else. I did something that that went against the law. He will be judged by what God told him. With the greater revelation, there comes greater responsibility, but the outcome is really the same. Both types of people will be judged. They will have their works, their actions judged according to what they know, according to what was revealed to them. Neither group is ignorant. Neither group is without excuse. It's just a matter of how much has been revealed to them. I'll even give you a little bit of foreshadowing of where this is going. Look over with me at verse 9 of chapter 3. As Paul is concluding and wrapping up this initial argument, what does he say there? He says, what then? Are we better than they? Not at all. For we have already charged that both Jews and Greeks are all under sin. As it is written, there is none righteous, not even one. We'll get here soon enough, but the case that Paul is making is what? Both groups stand condemned. With the law, without the law, doesn't matter. None are righteous, not even one. Now this bit of information would not sit very well with the Jews. The Jews thought that they were in. They thought that they were on easy street. But that's not the case. And Paul tells us why that's not the case in verse 13. He says, For it is not the hearers of the law who are just before God, but the doers of the law will be justified. The Jews were given the law. They were hearers of the law. You realize not every Jew would have their own Bible at home to read for themselves. They would have the law read to them, so So primarily they heard it, but the idea is the same. It's not about just being given the law. The law was for them to do. Once again, as we've talked about before, the judgment is based on what they do, on their actions, on their works. Just like we saw back in Exodus chapter 19, what did God say? Obey my voice, keep my covenant. In other words, Do the things that I'm telling you to do. The law was a series of commands, of instructions of things for them to do. There were 613 commandments for them in the law. Moral things, governmental things, civil things, ceremonial things. There were commandments for every aspect of their lives. So in order to keep the law, they had to do it. Hearing it wasn't enough. The requirement for them was to do it. That's what many of the Jews failed to understand. They were under the impression that having the law, hearing the law repeated to them, even reading the law, that that was enough to save them. Paul says that's not the case. That's not enough. We see people with the same attitude today. Many people think that having a Bible 
saves them. Going to church and hearing a sermon, sermon saves them. Being a member of a specific denomination saves them. I'm a churchgoer. I'm an everyday Sunday person. I even have a couple of different suits or dresses that are my Sunday go to meeting clothes. None of that matters. None of that saves them. Just like being a Jew, being born of a certain heritage, sitting in the synagogue and hearing the reading of Scripture, that didn't save the Jews either. That didn't make one just before God. The word just is a legal term. And it's an important word in the book of Romans. We'll see it over and over and over again. It means to be declared righteous, acquitted by God of your guilt. You can't just hold up your copy of the law or a Bible and say, See God, I've got it right here. No guilt for me. That's not how it works. Why? Because God will judge you based on what you do. So that's why he goes on to say, but the doers of the law will be justified. The only ones who will be declared righteous are the doers of it. Those who, when God looks at their life and compares it to the law, he can check off every box and say, yep, this person met every criteria, wasn't found guilty of any part of the law. You see, here is the problem with the law and the misunderstanding of it. The law had to be kept perfectly. It was the righteous standard of God. God showing what was necessary for living a right life. But the problem was, no one could keep it. James says in James 2 verse 10, For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles in one point, he has become guilty of all. In that passage, James is talking to Jewish believers who would completely understand his reference there. If you're talking about law and you fail to keep the law perfectly, if you stumble in just one point, he says in the next verse, you are a transgressor. You are a lawbreaker. If you fall under that legal standard, then you must keep it perfectly or else one strike and you're done. Now we say, but then it's impossible to keep it. Yes, that's exactly the point. It is impossible to keep it. The righteousness of God is a perfect standard that no one is able to measure up to. If I have a ruler, say a yardstick, that's three feet long, right? We all know a yardstick is three feet long. It's a standard of measure. In order for anything to be a yard, it has to measure up to that yardstick, doesn't it? You bring me something that's two feet long, two feet, 11 and 31, 30 seconds inches long, and you say that's a yard. And I take out my yardstick and I hold up whatever it is that you bring me, a piece of rope or whatever, and I hold it up next to it and I say, no, it's not. And you say, but it's but it's 1,151 of 1,152, 30 seconds of an inch long. And I say, you're missing a 32nd of an inch. It doesn't measure up to the standard of the yardstick, so it's not a yard, right? We're not talking about horseshoes and hand grenades. Close doesn't count. 
it either measures up or it doesn't. That's how it is with the righteousness of God. Are you perfect? No? Then you don't measure up. Have you perfectly obeyed God, trusted in what he revealed in nature, as we saw in Romans chapter 1? No one has. Then you don't measure up. If you were given the law, have you perfectly kept all 613 commandments that were listed there, every day keeping every single one to the letter without exception? No, no one ever did. You don't measure up. Paul isn't saying, and I'm not either, that keeping the law will save you or will save anyone. But the idea here is that anyone that could keep the law wouldn't need to be saved. They would stand before God justified because only someone who was already righteous could keep the law and keep it perfectly. Someone's life is examined and measured, and if they were under the law, as Paul is talking about here, the things that they did are held up to the measuring stick of the law. And if there is a single 32nd of an inch out of place, they don't measure up. They will be judged a lawbreaker. There's only one person who could ever and did ever do that, and that's Jesus Christ, God himself. He kept the righteous standard because he was and is righteous. And make no mistake, he didn't become righteous by being obedient to the law. He was able to perfectly obey the law because he was righteous. No one else could measure up to that standard. And so no one fits the bill that Paul is talking about here, where he says, but the doers of the law will be justified. There are no doers of the law. That's what we skipped ahead to see in chapter 3. Jews and Greeks are all under sin. He'll say later on in verse 19 and 20 of chapter 3 that the world is accountable to God. No flesh will be justified by the works of the law. Through the law comes the knowledge of sin. Those who were under the law could look at how much they didn't measure up to God's righteous standard. Because that's what a standard does, doesn't it? I have something that's about, quote-unquote, about a yard, and I can go around saying this is a yard long, but if I carry around a yardstick, then I'm able to see all the time that what I have isn't a yard long. It's a constant reminder that it's not a yard long. So those who are under the law, they are not doers of the law, but the principle that Paul is talking about here still holds true. God judges impartially. If you are under the law, you will be judged by that standard. If you aren't, you'll be judged apart from the law. But you will still be judged. You will still be held accountable. The impartial judge gives no one a pass. That's why he's impartial. So we come to verse 14. And we'll see that it's really very simple in what Paul presents here. He says, For when Gentiles who do not have the law do instinctively the things of the law, these not having the law are a law to themselves. 
So he's talking here about those who, who are not under the law, clearly associating those with Gentiles. He says, they do not have the law, but do the things of the law instinctively, or some translations say naturally or by nature. What does that mean? It means that even though they haven't been given specific instructions, they still know some things that are right and wrong. There is a corruption to their knowledge, usually, but they still have that knowledge. For example, every person on earth knows that murder is wrong. You can't just go out and kill somebody. Stealing is wrong. Cheating on your spouse is wrong. 99.99% of the population would agree with those things. Well, guess what? The Mosaic Law says they're wrong also. Because they are. Those three things make the list. Ten Commandments, they're right there. Shall not murder, shall not commit adultery, shall not steal. So that's what he's getting at here. Even though they don't have the law, it wasn't given to them. Somehow, they still know these things are wrong. Now, he's not saying that they know instinctively all 613 commandments of the law. I doubt there are very many Jews that knew all 613 commandments. But he's saying that even those without the law still do some of the things that are found in the law. Because there is a natural sense that God has instilled in everyone that some things are right and wrong. We were created in the image of God. There are certain aspects of the moral likeness of God that was put into every single person. We talked a few weeks back about homosexuality, uh, back in chapter 1, verses 26 and 27. What did we see there? Paul said that they, ex they exchanged the natural function when they engaged in homosexuality. Men with men, women with women. That's from the same root word that we have here for instinctively or naturally. It's known to be wrong. They might suppress their knowledge of it, but not even very deep down. They know that it's wrong. We see that in our society today. But also, you go to any corner of the world, any society, and find tribes of people that have had no contact with the outside world, and even they will have some of the same laws that we have. Don't steal. Don't murder. Do what your parents say. Things of that nature. So that's really what he's talking about here. Even though they don't have the law given to them, they still do the things of the law. And then at the end of the verse, he says, These, not having the law, are a law to themselves, in that they show the work of the law written in their hearts. They don't have the Mosaic Law. They don't have it written out, but they have it instilled within them, which is what we've, been, we've just been talking about. They have that basic recognition of sin, of right and wrong, because God has put it there. They are not truly lawless. They understand the concept of laws. What would be right and wrong? In what form is this law? Again, it's not 613 commandments spelled out for them in their heart. No, it's much more basic. It's more natural, but they know that it's there. A person goes out and kills someone. What do they do? 
Usually they run, they hide. Why do they do that? Well, they must have read the Mosaic Law. No, I mean, maybe they have, but probably not. Some people maybe even have never touched a Bible. They kill someone, they still run and hide. Why? They did something wrong. They know that. You ask people if they're good people, if God will let them into heaven. And sometimes they say, well, I'm pretty good. And they might say, I've never killed someone. Well, why would they say that? Because killing is wrong, and they know that it's wrong. These are very basic truths that we're talking about being in people's hearts. You look through history and relationships between men and women, what do you have? Relationships between men and women. Men and women would get married. You, you can track that as the normal pattern in the human race for thousands of years. That's normal. People from all nations, from every walk of life, they know that's the normal way that this all works. I saw a show recently, a, a documentary, uh, some of you may have seen it too, where a guy goes over to Africa and talks to people in a village there about some of the things that we have going on here in the United States today. And he asks them, can a man become a woman? Can a man and a woman swap genders? Basically asking them questions about things that are seen as normal situations for us here in the United States. And these people are looking at him like he's crazy. They're laughing at these questions that he's asking. Why would they laugh? Not a single one of them pulled out a biology textbook. There wasn't a biologist among them, and yet they all knew that these were ridiculous questions. How did they know that? Because they know these are very basic truths that God has made clear to everyone. This isn't difficult stuff to understand, but obviously the world makes it more difficult. And we spent time in chapter one talking about why that is. But every person has general knowledge that God has given them, and they have a general sense of morality that God has put in their hearts. They know right from wrong. It might not be truth to the detail of which type of fork you use in different situations, but it's a truth to the degree of, hey, you don't stab your neighbor with a fork. That's wrong. Okay, so we see the end of verse 15. We get a little more information on how this works. Their conscience bearing witness and their thoughts alternately accusing or else defending them. Now, this is related to the things that they do. At the beginning of the verse, he said, they show the work of the law written in their hearts. How is it shown? How is it seen? It's seen in what they do. Remember, this is all about their actions. This is all about their works. What they do shows that there is law there, that, that they are not completely lawless, but have that inherent knowledge. And so it's their conscience that bears witness against them, accusing or defending them. Someone sins, and what do, what do we say it does? It bothers our conscience. We feel bad. We feel guilty. The first time someone steals something, there's guilt. The conscience is overwhelmed with guilt. 
I remember when I was a kid, I don't remember for sure how old I was, probably four or five, but I remember the one time I stole something from a store. Yep. I was at the grocery store with my mom, standing by the barrel of peanuts, the kind still on the shell that you crack yourself, where you're supposed to weigh them out and you're supposed to put them in the bag. Nope, not for me. There was no scoop for me that day. I waited for the opportune moment, and I took one. It was a single nut peanut, not a double nut. Didn't want to be too hard to hide. I wanted to the, the small single nut one that was easy to conceal. And I slipped it right into my pocket. And oh boy, I was nervous all the way home. Just listening for the sirens that I was sure would be coming up behind us in the car ride home. Got home. Went outside behind the garage um, and made sure no one was around, no one was looking, and I ate that single nut peanut, cracked it open and ate it as fast as I could. I didn't even really like peanuts, but I ate it. And then I take the shell and I crushed up the shell as much as I could and I buried it in the dirt behind the garage, destroyed all the evidence that I could. I was so terrified of getting caught stealing that peanut my conscience bothered me so much. I'm sure that's what saved me from a life of crime. Why did that bother me so much? I knew it was wrong. You don't steal. I, I, I had never been handed a piece of paper that said, you don't steal peanuts. But I knew that it was wrong, and my conscience bore witness against me of that. But you know, there are people out there that steal things left and right all the time. They run scams to cheat people out of all their money. And it doesn't seem to bother them because they've done it so much, so often, that over time their conscience becomes corrupted. Look over in the book of Titus with me. Paul tells Titus this in the first chapter of his letter to him. In Titus chapter 1, look down in verse 15. To the pure, all things are pure. But to those who are defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. But both their mind and their conscience are defiled. And then look what he says down in verse 16. They profess to know God, but by their deeds they deny him, being detestable and disobedient and worthless for any good deed. Similar to Romans, Paul is talking about those who are disobedient. In verse 15, unbelieving. They are fallen. They are not saved. They are still lost in their sins. Their conscience becomes defiled with sin. There is a corruption that takes place in the conscience. So it is not always perfect itself, not totally reliable. But it is still there. And whether or not a person has heated it or smothered it down doesn't mean that they don't have it. We need to realize the conscience itself is not the standard, but the conscience convicts someone against that standard. And that's true for both Jew and Gentile alike, not just Gentiles, but Jews as well have to deal with their conscience. The conscience is the thing that when you try to pass off that length of rope as a yard, it's like having that annoying little brother that keeps yelling out, hey, that rope isn't the same length as the yardstick, remember? You measured it, and it was short. It was too short. 
It tells a person, it convicts them of what they know to be true. For the Jew, they had the full yardstick, carefully measured out. They had that in their back pocket. The Gentile didn't have that yardstick, but they had a good idea of what a yard was. You pull out a length of rope that's only three inches long, you know that that's not a yard. What are you doing? Telling someone you have a full yard of rope there, that's not a yard. For both Jew and Gentile, they have standards of measure, standards of righteousness. One is the letter of the law from God. The other is the truth that is written on their heart. But in both cases, it is enough for them to know right from wrong. Enough right from wrong for God to be able to use that and impartially say to them both, you have violated the law that I gave to you. All are under condemnation. All will be found guilty by God because none will be found righteous. People don't get this. People in Paul's day, people in our day, they think to themselves, I'm good enough. Good enough for whom? Not for God. Maybe they're good enough for me or another person. Maybe, maybe they live a life where they could point to all of the humanitarian efforts they've done or the people that they've helped. Maybe they can point out that they volunteered for this cause or that cause. They've been able to financially help the, help the poor, those kinds of things. Maybe I could look at the things that they've done and I might say, wow, those are some pretty impressive things. They seem like very worthwhile, helpful things that those people have done. I, I might even be embarrassed to look at my own life and see that I haven't done half the things that they have. But you know what? Impressing me is nothing. Because my life is not the standard. And I'm not the judge. The righteousness of God is the standard. God is the one who judges everyone impartially. He looks at those things and says, does it measure up to my standard? Have they kept my laws perfectly every 32nd of an inch? If not, they don't measure up. They're lawbreakers. They're guilty. Are they Jew or Gentile? Are they Catholic or Protestant? Are they man or woman? Are they black or white? None of that matters. None of that is taken into account. Only have they done deeds that measure up to God's standard of righteousness. Look at verse 16. We'll end with verse 16 for today. This is when their judgment will come. On the day when, according to my gospel, God will judge the secrets of men through Christ Jesus. We saw this back in verse 5, talking about that same day. But because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. There will be a day when God will judge. Through his Son, judgment will come upon them. Right now, everyone has time. We don't know how much time, but everyone who's breathing has time to repent because the judgment isn't here yet. Yes, 
they are turned over to their sins. Yes, every sin they commit stores up more and more wrath for themselves. But every single person who isn't saved has the opportunity to turn from that sin today. Accept the free gift of the gospel that God has offered to them, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Everyone has opportunity to believe. Paul says, according to my gospel, this is the gospel that he preaches. It's the gospel with which he's been entrusted. We don't like to talk about it, but the gospel is a message of judgment. It doesn't have to be for everyone, but it is. What's our favorite gospel verse? Right? Everybody's favorite gospel verse. John 3.16, everyone knows that verse. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Everyone loves that verse because it shows the goodness of the gospel. Yes, it does, but you note that even there, there's the reminder, whoever doesn't believe does what? Perishes. If you don't believe, you perish. That's what Paul is talking about. The perishing, the judgment that rightfully falls upon all that don't believe. In these first chapters, Paul is telling it like it is. This is mankind's condition. He is fallen and depraved. Even the morally minded ones are lost in their sin and will be judged by the very laws they find themselves under, that they strive in vain to keep. What does he say at the end of verse 16? God will judge the secrets of men through Christ Jesus. Even the very best ones, quote-unquote, have their secrets. No one is immune from this. Turn over to the book of 1 Corinthians, 4th chapter of 1 Corinthians. Paul talks about judgment here and about what people can see or not see. And it's not what people see that's important. If you look at verse 3 of 1 Corinthians chapter 4, he says, But to me it is a very small thing that I may be examined by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even examine myself. For I am conscious of nothing against myself, yet I am not by this acquitted but the one who examines me is the Lord. Therefore, do not go on passing judgment before the time, but wait until the Lord comes, who will both bring to light the things hidden in the darkness and disclose the motives of men's hearts. And then each man's praise will come to him from God. What you see someone do or not do, maybe it's good, maybe it's not. What's in their heart? It seems like we hear all the time about people in trusted positions, teachers, priests, even pastors that get caught in heinous, vile crimes. And people say, wow, how could that happen? I never saw that coming. No, because they did them in secret. They did them in the darkness. They kept them out of places where people could see them, where you and I could see them. 
But God sees them. They aren't really hidden. And it's going to be on that day of judgment when all those things are finally seen, when they're found out. Sometimes those sins get found out. A lot of times, I'm sure they don't. But in the end, they will all be disclosed. God will judge them all. They will be judged impartially, fairly, justly, but they will be judged. This is not a pretty picture that we find Paul taking us through in these first three chapters of this letter. We're talking about mankind with no hope. There is no hope that man has in himself. He cannot do anything good enough to impress God. In fact, we looked a few weeks ago at Isaiah 64, 6, where we saw that in God's eyes, our, our righteous deeds are a filthy garment. The unbeliever can't do anything that is considered good before God. Why? Because of what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 4, 5. When God judges, he will disclose the motives of men's hearts. All those good deeds that people do, are they doing them to glorify God? Haven't they already rejected him first? That's who we're talking about here. If someone does a good deed, quote-unquote good deed, having rejected God in their life, then before God, that deed isn't good. Their motives uh, do not glorify God. No one can work their way to heaven. To salvation. It's not possible. It is only through the saving work of his son coming to earth as the spotless lamb of God, dying on the cross for our sins, buried and raised the third day, paying our penalty for us that our sins incurred. It is only by repenting of our sins and believing in what he did for us that we can live with him for all eternity, having our account wiped clean.